Okay, I'm gonna try a new trick here. Um, it's still, uh, sorry, that was, that was, that was the chair. Um, yeah, people are still up and they're actually watching, uh, I think they're watching House Hunters in the other room, but, uh, it just seemed like the right time to record this intro. I don't know why, sue me. Um, look, we're gonna talk about someone who's super cool, who knew I was really glad to be able to uh sit down with her name is Alyssa Getchus. uh easier to say than it is to spell uh I promise you can figure out how to spell it from the blog post if you do that or of course you're looking at the name of this episode you'll know how to spell her name so uh, this is anyway the point is she's awesome she was gracious enough to <laughs> actually um sit down and record this podcast on her birthday just before she went out to celebrate that fact in her apartment um uh and that was great and she's great uh she's a freelance director and i that's that's just underselling it because that's what she does now but she's got all these dramaturgy credits and she was a literary associate with woolly mammoth and she was an artistic director at a theater and uh, she's a super cool person and she's uh She's great to listen to, and I'm really happy to be able to bring you this episode. Uh, so, oh, by the way, my name is Aaron Teachman, and this is Exit the Stage Door. I hope you're not here on accident, and that's not a surprise to you. But if you are, hey, welcome. And um, okay, yeah, let's let's just let's just get to Alyssa because that's where the interesting stuff is happening. Uh, enjoy. And then went from to Shakespeare from there. That, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things the that web. always, <laughs> exactly, it always fascinates me, like, uh, uh, how did you do that? I don't know, yeah. it's sort of all, uh, yeah, that's sort of one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the I podcast was, begins by the interviewer walking away from the microphone. Right. I was going through, um, I was going through, uh, like, done a rabbit hole of production photos from the first show that I ever directed in college. Kate McKinnon. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. She's just so awesome. I'm so happy for her. Just makes me laugh. Makes me laugh when yeah. I see her on TV and cheer. And now she's going to be a Ghostbuster. That is so exciting. I, I flipped my shit in the most positive way when I saw the people they were in cast in that. I was like, yes! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, we were, because it was 10 years ago this fall that we did that show. Um, she played uh, the Skriker uh, in Carol Churchill's play. And um, so we were going to try and get back together the three uh, main actresses, our stage manager and myself. Um, and so we were like messaging each other. And Kate doesn't have a Facebook page anymore. Mm. Um, just too fancy. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, I was out with my friend Kat and I was like, oh, you know, like I have a cell phone number, but I doubt she has she was like, just try it. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And so I sent her a text. And I was like, hey, is this you? This is Elissa. She replied, getchus? How the hell are you? And I was like, oh. And that was like all our exchange was. But, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, Kate. That's I great. Miss her. Mm. But you'd think I'd be a better follower of Saturday Night Live. And yet. But I watch her. <laughs> <laughs> watch your clips. <laughs> right. so. 
you do what you can. It's a it's a saturated world in the media landscape, and uh, we are artists in our own right. So indeed, that can keep us pretty busy. Yeah, but yes, that is how you pronounce that. Last that name. I was that, <laughs> that is I <laughs> because I'm a German nerd. Topic <laughs> I, I brought up. I was like, so this is how a German would say that probably, and this is how it's usually anglicized. Mm. But I'm not gonna go out on. All right, like, you say. So in German, uh-huh. it would probably be something like Gershus. Uh-huh. And it's very often, stuff like that is very often anglicized to Gershus, as in okay. Koenig. Right. Her name is Koenig in German, uh-huh. but for example. But you God. never know what people will do yeah. with their names. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're Gershus, which I always say is easier to say than spell. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, my family actually uh, is Swiss. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. My cousin, uh, Andrea, did research into our last name and actually found out that it's uh, not even German. It's Romanche. Oh, wow. So it's from, like, the, the very small population in the Alps that speak Romanche, which is German, French, and Italian all sort of smooshed together. Yeah. So that's... Still an official language of Switzerland, still, though. yes, yes. It reads pretty highly in there. Yeah. Uniqueness scale as well. Yeah, but yes, but the one time I went to a... Germany. They were like, oh. oh. I was like, yeah. Do I get a discount? <laughs> I did not. No, yeah. But, yeah. No. But the, bus- the business thinking, like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's fun. So someday I need to get to Switzerland. So Yes. Oh, I have yeah. spent All of that. a very brief amount of time in Switzerland. I uh, went on a journey of discovery or whatever. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it was, I mean, so I, I left the alley in 2010 and was going to move to New York to be a director, which mm-hmm. was stupid, as I've said many times. <laughs> Kids don't do it that way. Um, but in between, I was like, okay, look, this is an opportunity that to do something that I don't usually get to do while running shows. Right. I, this, I have to take this opportunity to go back, because I went to school in Germany in 2000, oh, okay. junior awesome. year in Munich. I lived in lived in the Studentenstadt there for a whole year and there's a whole mess of people including a bunch of people in DC now that I yeah. still connect with so That's I was like awesome. I haven't been back though. so yeah. I put together this itinerary um, and it, it was pretty ambitious six weeks uh, two weeks in Berlin mm-hmm. a week in Munich uh, a week in Amsterdam mm-hmm. a week in Brussels mm-hmm. and a week in Basel I chose Basel because that's where my great uncle, who studied German as well, I was he was in, he was posted in Germany um, in the early fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, I have to get this story. He's a great storyteller, so I'm sure he has more of these. But I believe he was a listener. Like his his job was to acu- accumulate foreign languages and listen mm, cool. to East Germans and Russians and stuff like that. And when he w- was got out of, he didn't go to school in the United States. He went to school at the University of Basel. Oh, okay. So that's where he... And he's, he used to teach a philosophy of teaching. So like, oh, cool. Yeah, he's a super cool guy. Uh, fun story. Theater-related <laughs> story. He... So my family has Swedish roots. And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't actually know, but I don't know... So he's, he, is, he is an interest in Swedish culture. And so he's a huge fan of Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, why am I forgetting her name? Oh, I'm not gonna... Yeah. <laughs> Google, Google Google has to fix that. Um, oh my gosh, she's she's BB Anderson's co-star in Persona. Um, IMDb, quick, quick. This is ridiculous. I cannot believe she <laughs> she directed Kate Win uh, Kate Blanchett in that um, streetcar adaptation. Oh, I should know this. I, I 
what I'm totally spacing oh, on this woman's name, which is uh, oh, she's in Persona. So. Liv Ullman, oh my gosh. Oh, okay, there you Liv go. Liv Ullman, okay. So, <laughs> somehow or another, and I believe it was through, I could be wrong about this, I'm, uh, I believe it was through their work with uh, mental health mm. charities, but somehow they became friends with Liv Ullman. Oh, okay. And they were in the room with her when they started hatching the idea of that production, and they read for her as they were sort of uh-huh. breaking the idea of it. Very good. Cool. Which is ridiculous yeah. on the face yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serious? Wow, okay, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. It's awesome, yeah. and he tells my favorite story ever about the lamp, which is so great, like, <laughs> that, um, he, oh, he has two great stories about Liv Ullman um, that she loves to tell because Woody Allen's a huge fan, and mm-hmm. they used to live in New York, and they arranged, somehow, they arranged a dinner party where Igmar and Woody would both be there. Oh, jeez. And, and everyone was anticipating, and, you know, Igmar's a huge fan of Woody's work. Uh-huh. And they spent the entire evening essentially not talking to each other at all. <laughs> and everyone was terrified that yeah. that meant it, was, it, just, it just went poorly. That was uh-huh. the worst thing that ever happened. Uh, and separately, they were told by everyone else that it was the best evening they'd ever had. <laughs> Just being in the room was enough for them. Right. But they, they, on this movie, and I wish I, I wish I knew which film it was, but it, Ingmar is making this movie on, and just needed some more light in the scene. Mm-hmm. So somebody's like, ah, you know, and they're shooting on location and nothing incredibly fancy. Mm-hmm. That's because that's the way he liked to work. Um, and somebody remembered that there was a light in the attic, <laughs> so they go and they get the light out of the attic and they like scene and they move on and they finish the day and don't uh-huh. think anything of it well it turns out somebody wrote a dissertation about the centrality of that lamp to the meaning of that film <laughs> awesome we yeah awesome yeah. those are great stories he tells them much better than i do anyway why we shouldn't be opening this podcast with oh, me yeah. telling silly stories oh, this yeah. is about you right, right and right. the awesome adventures that you're up to currently including yeah. eurydice yes eurydice yeah um, yeah, no, it's my first time uh, directing anything of Sarah's. Um, I it was the first thing I ever saw at Woolly um, was Rebecca's production of Clean House. Really? Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I um, I missed Big Death and Little Death, which opened the space, but Clean House was next, and so I um, uh, so I got into new plays, backing up. <laughs> so you wanted to talk about career as well. Yes, absolutely, so, absolutely. Uh, so I went to undergrad at Columbia in New York, and uh, uh, summer before my senior year, I interned at Manhattan Theater Club mm. um, and was working there uh, under in the literary department uh, under Paige Evans, who now runs Lincoln Center Theater 3, um, Elizabeth Bennett, who uh, left halfway through the summer, um, she was had been the literary manager, and now she works um, for a grant organization, I believe. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, if I got that wrong. Um, and Emily Schultz, who now runs, um, or is one of the higher-ups at Ars Nova. I forget what her actual title is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a wonderful three months working for them, uh, and then uh, went back uh, for my senior year and uh, had dinner with Emily and Elizabeth a couple of times throughout the year and was just like, when I graduate, I can just come back, right? I can just come back. And they were like, you don't want to just come back. And so they said to me, you know, like, you need to leave New York and then decide if you want to come back. 
Um, and that is probably like the best piece of advice I got, <laughs> um, or the most significant piece of advice I took. Um, uh, well put. Yeah. Strategically well put. Yes. Um, because, you know, like I love New York and uh, I'm from a very, very tiny town in western New York State. And so like I desperately wanted to go to a city for school. Um, I spent one semester in London. Loved London. Oh, nice. Loved London. Uh, kind of wish that I'd gone to a part of the world where English wasn't the main language. Sure. Where I could use the French that I took <laughs> for so many years. Um, but loved my semester there. Um, and I think it was when I came back from London and uh, actually landed um, at JFK, took uh, the super shuttle to Columbia uptown uh, and dropped my bags in my friend's room and we went and saw the opening of um, Return of the King. <laughs> <laughs> so like no sleep into Return of the King with all of my friends. Wow. Um, but just like going through the city and the super shuttle, I was like, oh my god, New York is so like cramped and dirty and uh, and like I still I love New York and love going back to visit but I think that was sort of London was sort of the first step in realizing oh maybe I don't want to live here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and coming to DC I was just like oh my goodness like the streets are wider the buildings are shorter there's more sky there's no billboards like these things are wonderful um, and then Baltimore has even been like a better step away for me um, you know the city moves a little bit more slowly mm -hmm. um, <laughs> They give a little less of a shit <laughs> um, about, you know, like, it, it's a city that embraces artists more. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's there's not as many business suits mm -hmm. in this city, mm -hmm. which I really like. Um, you know, like, I even after just, like, a few months of living here, like, going back down to visit people in D.C., I was like, oh, I feel the need to, like, dress up more. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I kind of resent that. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I forget what... Well, and so, so in yes, D.C., so, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, that was at Woolly? Yes. So, I... Um, uh, applied for a whole bunch of internships and yeah, Willie absolutely. didn't actually have interns in an internship program at the time um, but Elizabeth had worked with uh, Kevin Moore and Rebecca Tashman at La Jolla Playhouse and so she connected me with them she was like they just moved into a new building I'm sure they need people <laughs> um, and sure enough it Accurate. worked out yeah. <laughs> um, so I came down interviewed with Tom Pruitt uh, who was running the education program at the time and with Howard um, and then moved down here I uh the summer after I graduated, I did a production of Measure for Measure in uh, Morningside Park, um, which had like nothing except for like people <laughs> and lights, and that was about it. Um, and uh, so, um, so we closed, and the next day I moved to DC, and the day after that started out well, like holy crap! <laughs> so there was yeah very little downtime. Um, and yeah, and so I was in DC for about seven years um, altogether before moving up here um, to Baltimore, which is my home, with my beautiful apartment. A very yeah. I used to carry around pictures of it on my cell phone to show like my friends in DC and my friends from New York, and I would show them the pictures, and I'd be like, "Ask me what my rent is." 
(laughs) (laughs) And then they would punch me. (laughs) That was one thing. I mean, I knew when I moved to New York that Mm -hmm. I was going to be in for, like, eye-watering. And that living by myself was simply not going to happen. And I lived on my friend Brendan Gallagher's um, and his sister Casey's couch. We lived for the three months that I was there. Uh, Was it three? October, November, December... No, the five months I was there, cause okay. through the end of March. Um, but yeah, so all the time on their couch, which that affordable. It was <laughs> at, at three hundred dollars a month, incredibly oh affordable, God. and it was in Jersey City. Yeah. So it was right on the path station. So there was a lot of good things about yeah. it. It was also in Jersey City, yeah. which as as commutes go, isn't a lovely one. Yeah. But um, especially not when your day job is working for Macy's at Herald Square. Oof. Yeah. Didn't go well. Interesting. <laughs> it might have been if I wasn't stuck in the basement selling Dockers. Oh yeah. Yeah. That sounds less fun. They have <laughs> renovated the space since mm-hmm. I was there, and I hope they fixed it because the yeah. the flow of that building was awful for uh, just if if you wanted men's pants, this uh, is like <laughs> like re, re, retail advice or whatever. But if you wanted men's pants, you had to, you literally had to go to three separate floors: the basement, the third floor, and the fourth floor. The boutiques were on the third floor, and the jeans were on the third floor, and the old man pants were on the f- fourth floor, <laughs> and the just regular, I just need to wear pants pants, the mm-hmm. ones that are super popular in India for whatever reason, <laughs> the Dockers, they're in the basement next to the Hugo Boss underwear and the <laughs> winter coats. Of course. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Why wouldn't they be? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, but moving to D.C., I was like, oh, okay, it, I know it's going to be expensive but it can't yeah. be that bad and then no it is yeah every bit new yeah. york's equal for eye-wateringly high rent yeah yeah no i um lived in four different apartments during my time in dc uh the first one i lived in was my cousin who i like to say had a real job <laughs> um and so uh it was uh it was a fabulous location it was in eastern market like just a couple blocks away it's uh, like do you know like brown's court it like cuts off like it's like sixth and independence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and uh it was adorable and the size of a postage stamp yeah (laughs) um you know like yeah it was itty bitty and then she moved to grad school um across the country so i moved in to a house with four other actresses um which they were awesome and i loved them uh, and they were fabulous, but it was, um, I was living in the basement and I could, would punch the ceiling when I was drying my hair. Cause I'm a fairly tall individual. Um, and it took me, it was on 18th, but it was North of the bridge. Mm-hmm. So it took me about an hour to get to Woolly each way. It's so crazy. Yeah. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. So then I moved into my studio that I was in for a while in Columbia Heights and then was priced out of when the target opened. And then, um, was roommates with a friend's high school friend um, in an apartment that was a fabulous deal, which is where I lived until I left D.C., and I ended up actually leaving because my landlord went nuts. Um, and, yeah, it was it was not pleasant. She just, like, got really angry about, like, yeah, something that my cat had done, and I was like, this is why I pay pet deposits yeah. and security deposits and all of this stuff, and, well, you're just going to make my life hell, so I'm going to move. So that was that. 
but yeah but this is great i have tons of space so much storage and exercise room bike room it's close to everything and it's cheap speaking of friendly about friendlier to artists as well it yeah, is an artist yeah. community too so. yeah no having like you know there's this incredible uh, painter who lives um, a couple floors below and I'm going to blank on his name right now but you know, I don't know where my phone is um, <laughs> but uh, he has just some gorgeous work that I dragged a couple of my friends in to see mm. um, um, beautiful um, portraits um, that are fairly religious in tone. Interesting. With like halos and stuff like wow, that. Wow. Um, okay. They're really, really lovely. Um, I'll send you a link. So like, All if right. there's a description of this or something, you can include <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's I, it. Is really it cool. does actually have to be put up on a blog post. Right. See blog post. Yeah. Links. And magic that people uh, behind the scenes for for you want to be podcasters. iTunes doesn't host anything. Um, they they provide a, they facilitate access to the link. It's a database of links, mm. so you have to host it yourself. But Squarespace has made that extremely easy. Yay! Thank you, Squarespace. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, uh, you post you put the audio up on a blog post, and then the blog post it gets cattle categorized and huh. basically it's an RSS feed that's just audio only and then okay. you just tap into the stream with iTunes or anybody else gotcha. that works for SoundCloud and uh, Catcher and all of that stuff. Very cool. Yes. Or. Right, I'm gonna <laughs> stop paying attention to Facebook and trying to figure out this guy's name so that I don't interrupt the flow of our conversation but this is gonna drive me nuts. No, I totally understand how that, <laughs> that could... That could um, drive you nuts who was I talking to about Eurydice not too long ago I mean I'm, you on the internet for sure right. um, because I adore the play it is something I was so proud of working on at the alley the design team was so good uh, the, I'm actually totally blanking I think it's Ryan Rummery but I'm totally that's, that's might not be him but I Rummery. think it was him no that's a lie it wasn't Rummery <laughs> It's, it's a guy I mistook for Rummery all the time. His name is Josh something or other. Uh-huh. He works with David a lot, whose last name I'm magically forgetting as well. This has been awful. Like, I used to work <laughs> with these people all the time. He directed the Farnsworth Adventure. He directed Orson's Shadow. He directed that super famous Barentine Playhouse, Our Town. David Crowe. <laughs> I got there eventually. Um, and Rui Rita designed the lights, and uh, Hugh Landwehr designed this beautiful, like, dilapidated, ruined uh, boardwalk. That was, it, it was fantastic. And yeah, everything about the show was, I never got tired of watching it. And it's a brisk show, too. It really is. It flies by. Um which is fun when you have a two-month-long rehearsal process. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, but yeah, no, it's great because, um, so yeah, so Clean House was the first show of, at Willie that I saw. Mm-hmm. And then um, right when I was there, um, I guess Sarah must have come like for that closing or something like that because um, we did uh, a reading of the first draft of Cell Phone. Oh, okay. Right after I started. (laughs) Um, And I got to read Stage Directions, and I'm pretty sure I mispronounced something right away. Um, Well, she has really magical stage directions anyway. Yeah, yeah. And and then uh, I I worked with Rebecca on uh, Velvet Sky by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa as her assistant director, and then I was going to assist on Cell Phone, 
Um, but uh, then I went from being an intern and Howard's assistant uh, to being the only staff man staff member of the literary department. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, so uh, <laughs> so I had to give up assistant directing. I had to sort of because mm. when I was Howard's assistant, I was equally focused on new play development and literary work, mm-hmm. and uh, like shadowing Howard and being an assistant director and things like that and so I sort of had to set aside directing when I became the lit associate gotcha right um, and then the lit manager and um, so I gave up that assistant directing position and Alan Paul actually took it <laughs> um, so which was great because he helped out with the um, the cell phone ballet and the singing which mm-hmm. is not one of my strengths so, um, so yeah but um so yeah, so it's fun because it's, you know, like I've spent so much time like, you know, like I remember going to one of the very first design meetings with uh, Rebecca and Neil. Yeah, Neil Patel did the okay, yeah. set design for her cell phone um, at Sarah's apartment in New York. Um, and I still have the notes from it somewhere. Um, there's a lot of talk about conveyor belts, um, which didn't end up making it into the show but we talked a lot about conveyor belts um and so you know like all of that sort of stuff in my head and like always thinking about Sarah's work you know like as a dramaturg and then thinking and like shifting like that's sort of been like one of my biggest focuses in the last so many years is that shift of like going from thinking as a dramaturg to thinking as a director and being able to like toggle back and forth yeah because it's a it's a challenge to do that sometimes you can get caught up yeah um, in either side of it yeah um so it's it's been really fun um and uh i had a great conversation with um uh an older wiser director <laughs> uh, my friend nelson and um he was telling me that um when he did the Lincoln Center Theater Director Lab, they spent some time working on Eurydice, and that uh, that all of the directors were having issues with the actors. That like everybody was just having such a hard time with the text, and they were like, "Why is this so hard? Like it shouldn't be this hard. It doesn't seem like it should be this hard." And there's just there's there's like a, a an earnestness and a directness and a longing or a yearning in Sarah's writing mm-hmm. that uh, makes it more difficult to like you can't quite find the sort of like the purity of the emotions of the scenes yeah. if you're always playing action right because I don't think yeah. Sarah's characters want to play action which goes against so much <laughs> of what we are taught in America in terms of acting, in terms of directing, in terms of writing. Um, I don't know if you've read her. um, I've been reading her little 100 essays I don't have time to write. I have not read that yet. It's wonderful. Um, And it's so, and like, I say little because like... Oh, they are that, yeah. They're two pages, not even, like one page. Um, There's one that I love that's um, uh, an essay in praise of smallness. I admire minimalism. I love it. <laughs> um, but like, you know, so like in our rehearsals, um, we've been sort of going back and forth between text, like exploring the text and then also just like, you know, like they're, they're 19 and 20. Um, and yeah, this, this is, is 
the first production that the drama department's done in about two years. Oh, wow. Um, because they just went through a shift of who's in, like, the drama coordinator and all of that sort of stuff. Holy cow. Um, so a lot of them, all of their experience on stage came in high school. Because um, most, wow. I think, of my girls, because it's a, a girls' school, women's school, um, uh, I think they're mostly freshmen and sophomores. Um, so we've spent um, a lot of time uh, doing exercises about, you know, movement and space and, you know, framing and, like, creating interesting stage pictures and all of that sort of stuff. Because um, also I just don't want them to get, like, so deep in their heads and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. So. Well, and what I think is really one of the strengths of uh, Sarah's writing in Eurydice in particular is that it has the it's it has an inner monologue quality mm-hmm. to it so you don't it's not it's not a subtle piece in the sense that you need to intuit a lot about what the character is right although it's also a kind of elliptical like it's both open and hidden which is yeah. what's so great about yeah. the the it's it's and to me I, I when i saw it repeatedly i i i call it beat poetry of a kind yeah. like the rhythms of it are stuttering and stop start and all of that but but you don't have to I like I, I don't think you have to intuit a lot about the nature of grief right from the work so as an actor you don't necessarily have to like be in your head a lot in fact it's much more about being outside right because she is she wants you to manifest the ideas that are present in the myth and in the and in the like the the whole the whole string house thing is a physical metaphor that you're creating on stage and that's so you don't have to go and dance around like which of this means about longing for home or whatever it's like you're building your freaking string house we all get right. this right. that part right. that's actually the hard part right yeah it's being string house how the hell are you doing that oh we're getting there okay yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no uh maddie who's playing the father keeps being like how are we doing this like, yeah <laughs> We still have a month and a half before we yeah. get anywhere close to tech. Yeah, so you can you can take um, some time to figure so, that out. Yeah, no, and it's it's you know like like joking aside, like the two month process is so nice because like we're able to take our time with yeah. the design mm-hmm. um, in a way that you can't in most processes. Um, so uh, you know, uh, our set designer he came in and saw the space for the first time last week. Stop it! <laughs> Don't eat the aloe plant. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, my cat is misbehaving. <laughs> um, don't feline. Don't be a brat. Just get down. Just get down. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's gonna go pout. Um, but uh, so Ryan was able to sort of come in and see the space, which is a super teeny tiny black box that. Um, mm. The lighting designer came in and he was like, focusing these will be great. Oh, wow. <laughs> As he reached up and moved them. There's like, there's like 30 birdie lights. That's it? Well, there's like, there's uh, one pipe with about like six or eight par sixes. <sighs> but then it's just like 30 birdies everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and we have a budget because, you know, again, like it's a very, very small department. So we have... Um, we have a budget line that's, uh, in addition to like our regular budget, that's for um, structural improvements, <laughs> like structural or like equipment <laughs> stuff. So, uh. Uh, but Alec actually looked at it and he was like, "Hey, give that to sound." 
I'm like, all right, cool. On that show, you probably should. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I had um, I a brief Tell fantasy of that. Huh? You can keep keep going. I have to look up the sound designer's name because it's killing me. Uh, but uh, I had a brief fantasy that Remory actually could do the sound because um, my first sound designer had to back out. Um, and so I like texted him. I was like, "Are you? What are you doing in April?" He's actually going to be at studio. So. Oh yeah, what is he doing there? Oh, I knew you were going to. Yeah, ask sorry. No, him. never mind. Side sidebar. No yeah, need. Yeah, no need. But um, he's cool. I like. Uh, I like working yeah, with no, him. he's great. Uh, he actually uh, worked. On, I met him on the first, like my favorite, my favorite show at Woolly, uh, Vigils by Noah Heidel, um, which is gorgeous and wonderful, and also about grief. Um, <laughs> yes, Josh so, Schmidt. Okay, Josh yes. Schmidt. Okay. So also interesting. Him. So <laughs> now I've, I've never. I've never actually directed, been sole, solely responsible for directing any piece yet, but uh, I assistant directed an, uh, at the Summer Theater, mm-hmm. and we did things like Big, and uh, the two that I was d- directing on was Big and Happy Days. Oh, okay. And, um, but it's, it's, a, it's all high school students, so there are definitely times when I mean they're untrained as actors and all of that stuff so that that element is happening but they're also unformed as people so there are times I was like you just need to dwell oh you've never that life experience has not happened to you yeah I I don't know how to get you there yeah yeah no that's 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 a thing in this production yeah I was wondering about that Um, yeah were you looking for your phone Uh, I was at one point because it's flashing (laughs) It's being all kinds of excited. <laughs> I should probably get that. Button. You should go ahead and do that. Yeah, no. It flashes instead of rings. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Oh, hey. The soundscape comes alive behind us. <laughs> see, it was perfectly timed. Um, yeah, and actually, while we take a quick little break, uh, Stephen Towns, by the way, is the name of the artist. Okay, great. About. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there we go. Oh, interesting. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful work. What's it? What's the medium? What does he work in? Oh, I should know this. Uh, there's, um, I want to say it's oil paint, mm-hmm. but there's also like a lot of it. The canvases are covered with like a paper bag. Oh. Like a torn up paper bag. Interesting. Um, I think. Probably getting a lot of that wrong. Apparently, he just did a mural somewhere, and it's awesome. Oh, uh, cool! Related sidebar that I think is really interesting. I, I was never particularly into art, like art art history. I, uh, I've been I, I've been about film and, right. and books. So like, and the art, the, the <laughs> visual stuff that lies in between. I'm not so good at paintings and stuff like that. And I used mm-hmm. to be really drawn to realistic stuff. But then I spent time in Germany, and I spent time doing critical studies and learning about postmodernity, and all of that. And now I find that I love modern art, and that I can understand and connect with art in the presence of art. So when I went, when I I bummed around Europe, I had no money whatsoever. So I spent a lot of time in the free museums, and. And like I have six hours today, and this is the only thing on my list. So we're doing this museum today, right. and taking six hours to do it. And now I kind of think like, well, if I don't have four hours, there isn't any point in going to that art museum because right. you. I fall into that. Trap yeah, too. I just stare at it because you gotta. I found that I had to actually, like, really 
get up close and pull back and get up yeah. close and pull back and found that material really matters like the impact of a work of art is at least as much comes from the brush strokes and I never understood that like until I and until I went to those like great masters, when you go to the Van Gogh Museum and it becomes really, really, really apparent um, when people talk about the expressiveness of his painting. Yeah. It, and like, if you've only ever seen a print of Starry Night or the Wheat Fields, you actually haven't seen the painting. Yeah. Which I, we could talk about Walter Benjamin forever, but um, he was always really he always thought that the, there's something there is a magical status that we ascribe to the work of art and what is what is art when you can reproduce it endlessly what is it what does it yeah. does that make a difference with the photographers or whatever but i think he was a little bit wrong about painting like mm-hmm. the aura of the painting isn't just the fact that it's unique and only one person can have it at a time in that mm-hmm. instance like a rauschenberg like that's that's that kind of collage stuff with so yeah. much texture like the picture of it isn't de- isn't a reproduction of it like it's right, right so right. yeah anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no i um it's funny so the one and only class i took in directing um i took when i was in my semester in london um with mark wing davy <gasps> what <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> It was kind of awesome. Um, and I went into it having no fucking clue who he was. Yeah. Can, can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. yeah. Um, but um, so I would have been 20 when I took that class. So I was the age of the, my Eurydice girls now. And um, at that point, because it was actually London that turned me onto new plays. Mm. Uh, before that, I had been a classics person, hardcore, especially a Shakespeare person. <laughs> Hence the opinions. <laughs> um, but because uh, I grew up going to Stratford, Ontario oh, um, on yeah. a, like an annual okay. basis with my, my family. Um, but uh, so I was taking this directing course with Mark, um, who's the first thing he assigned us was Carol Churchill and like blew my mind. Don't you check. <laughs> He's going after a mouse. <laughs> Here, take your toy and go over there. Um... <laughs> So he had us do Carol Churchill, and then um, I actually, actually, I do not lie. This is my my notebook from my oh, class wow. with Mark because I was going over it to see if there were things that I needed to remember. Wow. Um, but uh, whoa, the <laughs> handwriting is out of control. <laughs> um, I've never written anything re- that readable in my entire life. <laughs> um, but. Uh, he for class he sent us to a museum to pick out a piece of artwork um that we liked uh to bring in and share with the group and then he also told us to find a piece to bring in an image that we could find online if we needed to of um work by our favorite currently living artist um and so i was still at that point still very much living in a world of like theater as escapism Mm -hmm. and you know like fairy tales and like i'd seen this amazing production of pericles that you know was just beautiful and it you know like sort of like whisked you away you know kind of thing wow um it was beautiful beautiful um and (laughs) so i brought in uh like we came back for class and Mark asked us to share the stuff that we'd gotten from the museums. And I was like, you know, like, I really don't like modern art. Like, I just, eh. And um, he's like, all right, fine, whatever. And we, like, kept going around the room. And then we uh, shared our favorite piece by our current, current living artist. And I shared um, 
uh, a piece by Thomas Canty, who is, he does covers of lots of books. Oh. Um, and his work looks very much like stained glass, and it's very you know, oh. like romantic and lovely and all of that. And Mark looked at it, and he went, <laughs> no wonder you don't like modern art. <laughs> Except with his charming British accent. <laughs> uh, and I was just kind of like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and he was just kind of like looking at me and like, you know, like, you know, like the, the tone of his voice was patting me on the head. Yeah. I was just like, oh. And so, you know, but, um, but yeah, no, that class was wonderful because like he was that next spring, he was directing a small tragedy by Craig Lucas at Playwrights Horizons. And so he and Craig were having phone conferences about the script and Craig was transcribing as they would talk. And so Mark came in and gave us, Craig sent him their notes and he distributed the notes to all of us wow um and so because i was in school in new york i was able to go see that production and like having had conversations about how mark approaches directing having read their notes about the script like and going in and like seeing all of it like actualized on stage and being like oh i get it now (laughs) like oh that's so great it was it was that's a viewing process that most people don't have anything like access to even when you're being trained to be a director you don't get that yeah yeah it was it was really really wonderful um uh Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Uh, um, the that's the the funny thing is the um, the light bulb for modern art actually turned on because I'm mostly an analytical person. I w- was right. going to be in science a science major, so like that's part of the reason like the art like I never really registered with me. For, yeah. But I was at the Hamburger Bahnhof, and this it's still there, which is actually in Berlin. Um, it's it's the one that went to Hamburg, hence the anyway. Gotcha. Um. <laughs> That was my cat's dinner. That's the, <laughs> that's the automatic thing. Okay, that's yeah. The thing. <laughs> but um, and we we actually were we had a, a, a docent walking us around and actually teaching us about what what's there. Um, and the, the piece that he showed us was uh, one of the blank canvases. I think it was a Russian mm. brick, but it's, mm-hmm. he's not the only artist to have come up with this concept. But yeah. it was a literal representation of your piece because it wasn't just a blank canvas. It was a blank canvas with a very specific light shining mm. at the canvas mm-hmm. so that when you the viewer stand in front of it your shadow is cast on the work of art mm. and when they were explaining is like that's what happens when you view any work of art you are a part of every work right and this is somebody's manifestation of it i was like what <laughs> you can yeah. do that kind of thing with yeah. art right yeah that's amazing and yeah ever since i've been yeah. Intrigued by stuff because the, and the narrative explanation around the modern art is at least as interesting as the as the, the art itself. Yeah. 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 So that's what. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my cat's dinner will now be a part of this podcast forever, <laughs> unless you edit it out. I do not edit my uh, my podcast, so I will not. Good to know. It's life lived. So anything I say will live on forever. Good yes, unless there's something that you're super worried about, <laughs> then then we can talk. But as a rule, I try to. Yeah, no, it's it was, it's interesting because I do have a tendency to. I don't filter very well <laughs> when I talk. I'm an oversharer, as any of my friends could probably tell you. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it's. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't actually read it yet, but the, uh, oh, what's his name? Ron Johnson. The article that came out that's been shared a couple times about the woman who, like, her one tweet destroyed her life. Oh, I haven't read that yet either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, you know, the, the, the tendency to take one thing out of context can bring the hordes and all of that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, the, the, the good and evil of social media. Yeah, and it, um, I don't know, the but, moment seems to have accelerated it, too, because, yeah. like, Gamergate in particular, <sighs> which is ridiculous, uh, and, but, but, like, it's, it's almost like a, the moment, right now, I, I won't, I won't speak for, like, mm-hmm. online culture in perpetuity, right. post-Gamergate, but it seems like having seen a group of people act heinously has given other permission, people, yeah. o- other, mm-hmm. uh, other people permission to act the same way, and that, so, like, when that Ghostbusters thing happened, people were immediately gamergating mm. all about how this will ruin your childhood and like right, the stuff right, that Lindy right. West gets from her trolls that she just shared on This American Life, which was an amazing story. Yeah. Um, that, I like, it seems to have intensified and accelerated recently, and I, I, feel, I, I hope it's a wave mm-hmm. that will pass because it's, it can get outrageously out of control in a way that like, some casual users of the internet aren't necessarily appreciative of. Right, 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 right. And yet, you know, and like... But, on the flip side... On the flip side, you know, like, I think there's just so much positive stuff, for lack of a better word, that's come out of social media. Oh, yeah. Like, if you look... Like this podcast. (laughs) Like this podcast. (laughs) Um, you know, and you know everything around the summit, everything around that was you know, amazing. Like, so I'm so glad you your your professional <laughs> segue kills skills right. are a top you. notch. Uh, but yeah, he, we'll, we'll finish yeah. your thought there too because uh, I think that's well, great. No, I mean, I just think that there's there's you know it's like if you look at you know, and I am by no means an expert on any of this, but if you look at um, the ways that um, younger generations are connecting and making statements as opposed to older generations so you know the 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 black lives matters protests oh, yeah. yeah that you know it's it's not about one big protest on the mall you know and so many of the young leaders of the movement were very frustrated with the march on the mall um and they were like this isn't this isn't this isn't how we communicate. And they were like, we're about the smaller marches that are all around the country. You know, that they're much more focused on the local issues and the local people and the local populations and their specific issues. And that there's strength in connecting between them, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily being in the same physical space. You know, like, and people will travel and like share stories and connect and, you know, show up and support each other, but it's not about everyone being in one place at one time. Right. Um, And, you know, but the organizing that has happened and the connection the connecting that's happened so much of that has been through social media and yeah, so much absolutely. through twitter yeah. um you know like i remember you know just like following and staying you know like awake until three or four in the morning to follow what was happening absolutely like, i did the know, same thing yeah, yeah it I, was yeah. Uh, yeah and it, you know it's also like partly because you know i don't have a television um <laughs> But, you know, but it was like being able to follow uh, Nara and DeRay. And oh, all they're so they're, good at they're their jobs. They're so good. And, you know, and it's just, you know, like everyone, all of the reporters who were there. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, so like by the time, you know, like someone was on Chris Hughes, I was like, oh, right. I saw Chris tweeting that. Right. Yeah. Tweeting them to like set up the interview. Like I've been following them for a long time now. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a very... 
different way of getting news, but I kind of prefer it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. And, and yeah. I've seen the statistics of, of somebody, I think it was TCG, who did it, like how to make your marketing more effective by looking at all of that marketing. kind of stuff. <laughs> but like something like 26% of people who are online use Twitter, but mm-hmm. their intense engagement with Twitter makes it so worth Like most people, there's yeah. 71% of people interact with Facebook at least once a day. But yeah. that demographic, by the way, is mostly over 60 at this point. So <laughs> you're saying, just so you're all aware of what's happening on Facebook. Uh, no, it's true. Um, uh, but the, the, the people who commit. Right are like the the stalwart in financial reporting and like Ned Andre who are amazing yeah. Yeah. because they're and Lindy West and Roxane Gay like they mm-hmm. conduct a lot of their lives and a lot of their public discourse occurs in this flow yeah oh my goodness do you follow Code Switch I NPR, Jean Denby Kachow. no I don't oh my god they're wonderful <laughs> okay yeah totally uh Gene is he's tremendous mm. at um, facilitating conversations on Twitter. They're so good at it. Yeah, and also, because um, uh, Gene Well in particular, he'll ask a question and then he'll retweet all mm-hmm. of the responses and his oh, response yeah. to yep. those responses yep. so that you get to see everything. Um, they're also really good. They're. Um, I know it must take a have like a tremendous psychic uh, kickback, but uh, they're good at editing their comment sections um but um don't read but, the comments yeah, right. um but uh you know like they're 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 just tremendous just read everything code switch does mm, okay yeah I'll definitely check that out <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, because, and uh, news wise i think the first like I guess Tweetstorm that i tw- twitter avalancher that i <laughs> fell into was andy carvin who mm. Um, who was just this guy at NPR for a while and then was covering Libya and mm. Egypt yeah. during the Arab Spring and then all yeah. of a sudden yeah. for a while my Twitter feed was so small that like Andy Carr, if I turned, if I muted him like there was nothing happening the rest of the day and now that I keep calling it a fire hose but it's yeah. it, that's almost too small a metaphor mm-hmm. it's such a gushing flow of information yeah. it can be difficult to flow to, to you know to get in and out of it but when yeah. you're in the flow of it it is such an amazing experience yeah. and you are so ahead of the game <laughs> it's true like well and like you have to be you know you have you can't just accept everything oh, yeah, that exactly, everyone says yeah. like you have to be you have to be engaged in what's being shared because and you have to be like wary and you have to say like oh am I gonna confirm this like okay well one who is the source yeah and like who else is confirming this and like you know because like I think about that you know in in even retweeting things yeah absolutely um but uh yeah um no it's 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 I I love Twitter I think (laughs) sure you can get screwed over but, um, you know, or, you know, like, if you say something that, you know, like, if you make a bad joke and people come after you for it, like, well, it's the danger of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the, the good of it outweighs the bad, at least for me, for, 
currently. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's something to change. Yeah, we'll see. We'll but see. I, I think that's a so we can we should probably finally end up back at the summit right. because one of the things that social media is really good at is if you are not capable of being at an event and you have right. someone who is a super connector and who's like ready to go, then the conversation about the event yeah. becomes more about your interaction with it in the moment. So it's because it, uh, why was I thinking about this? It must be there are a bunch of movies that where where this is the theme and I'm totally blanking in the name of it. But, <laughs> but like essentially that the narrative you you see the events and then you watch the narrative. Oh, it happens in Selma all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you just watch that meeting with Malcolm X and then right. you see the FBI's description of what that meeting was and like yeah. the narrative around an event that gets built up it almost immediately obscure the event. Yeah. And by in in the summit happened. I felt like I was there and I didn't have to deal with the Washington Post's coverage of what right. was or was not an issue. Right. I was listening with everybody. Yeah. Well, and it was it was interesting because like you know, I think back to uh you know, one of Peter's sort of early responses was, you know, like he had no idea, you know, because of course he's, you know, like on stage. Right. Um, and so much of the conversation, like the audience wasn't engaging, like there was no conversation up until like the last 10, 15 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, the people who were in the room tweeting, um, you know, and a, lar- a large part of that was me and uh, Liz Maestri and Steve yes. Spotswood. Um, who are all great follows on Twitter. Yeah. Um, uh, although there were a couple of others. Chimita was in there, I think. And Lauren... I forget Lauren's last name. <laughs> That's anyway. so... Yeah. <laughs> last names become so fungible on the internet. <laughs> it's like, true. Um, but... Uh, but so we were, we were responding, and then people were responding to us, and we were also trying to, like, just, you know, like, share out exactly what was being said, trying not to editorialize. Um, leaving those for separate tweets. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but Peter, you know, had no idea that there was such a strong response to what people were saying. Yeah. Um, and such a negative response because this the the tone in the room, and this surprises everyone who wasn't in the room, is that it was a very you know positive, upbeat, chatty conversation. Right. You know, and I don't think that left that tone shifted until. You know, Peter called on me for that final question, and then it ended right away. Mm. Um, you know, I think Paul gave a quick response, um, but that was about it. Um, but the conversation about it afterwards, because of what was happening on Twitter, changed everything. And also because um, uh, because Peter's on Twitter and knows so many of us yes. through Twitter. Right. Um, and is you know part of that conversation um, you know that he was able to go in afterwards and sort of look back at everything that was happening and everything that was being said and be like oh okay um, but yeah it was it was a very <laughs> two very different experiences yeah. I imagine yeah being in the audience and being on stage <laughs> um, but yeah well uh, it, it, it I find stuff like that so interesting. I'm I'm glad he, I'm glad that Peter organized the the summit and, and we'll see if any if it ever happens, happens again. again. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. Um, but uh, but it does highlight some of the ways those conversations have been held before about right. representation and what what yeah, it's like. Absolutely. And, and it's easy to just be seduced into the into that jovial, congenial tone. And and yeah. speaking as someone who works backstage a lot of time. 
it's easy to be overawed by the people who are in artistic control of a theater. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's the artistic director. Like, right. behavior changes around artistic directors. There's this aura around them, and they are, in many ways, way too bulletproof. Right. Um, <laughs> there are, you know, nonprofit governments. The board is supposed to do that, but mm-hmm. the way that the board right. got on board is the way that the, the reason the people are on the board is because they're in love with the artistic director. So it becomes a vicious feedback loop where right. necessary feedback does not occur. And they can't course correct. So, and and you get forums like that, which seem like, oh yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing a little bit of something for it. And then everybody, and then on Twitter, we we got a chance to be like, time out. Yeah. Things are not okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, And it seems like you were part of the problem and you, yeah. Well, and like the thing that was so frustrating was that, um, you know, nothing that was said by the ADs on stage was anything new. Right. Um, They were all excuses that we've heard for years and years and years that have already been disproven um and that's what was so maddening you know to hear you know paul oh, i should know how to pronounce his last name tetro yeah i think it's teatro um i just worked at boards i should know that <laughs> um uh to hear him say that there just aren't enough women writing plays and that it, that's why it was important to commission them for the Women's Voices Festival it just made my head explode. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I was a lit manager for so many years. Like, I have seen all of these plays. I've had them on my desk. I've had them in my inbox. Like, they exist. You just aren't paying attention to them. You know, like that to me was actually the most right. upsetting comment. <laughs> like I know, I know Ryan got you know like a lot of flack for what he said, and some of it I think was deserved. Um, but look at Ryan's season; like yeah. he's programming women, not only female writers but also female directors. Right. You know, he's 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 making an effort, whereas so many people just aren't. Yeah. You know? Like you know, you can look at Shakespeare's new season. Yeah, it's um, an awkward like, season. Oh, it's just so frustrating because it just you know, like to me, it just comes back to priorities, like the priorities of the artistic director, and like sure you can say they have pressure from their board or you know they have pressure because of financing and all of that, but that just means that your board and your financing is taking priority over what you're putting on your stage and what the, who, you, who you're representing to your audiences. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, like every time we have this conversation, there's always one or two people who are like, oh, but it's Shakespeare. It's hard to diversify when you're doing Shakespeare. It's like, no, it's really not that yeah, hard. Yeah. How many adapters do they hire every year? And they always hire David Ives. You know, like how many directors do they hire every year? How many of them are women? You know, like how many of them are people of color? You know, like finally this year they have directors of color in their lineup but you know like <laughs> the the most upsetting statistic going into the summit to me was that they hadn't hired a director of color since their 1990-1991 season like unbelievable and the fact that no one had noticed that <laughs> because they are very good at casting people yes, of color they are in extremely their good. they're very good at that um, but they don't have anyone backstage. They don't have directors. They don't have writers. Um, so you end up with completely tone-deaf productions like that. Much to do about nothing. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. When we, I mean, I wasn't involved yeah. in the original production, but when we oh, remounted it, <laughs> when we remounted it, I was like, time out. Yeah. Cho- choices were made here that I don't even understand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, it's just because you don't, if you don't have a multiplicity of voices in yeah. the room, y- you don't know what questions to ask. You don't yeah. have perspective to recognize <laughs> what's going to be upsetting. Yeah. Well, you know? speaking, the, the, did you see Tempest? No. There's a lot of there's a lot of good about about their their production of the Tempest, but the choice of Caliban. Mm. They have a black Caliban. Yeah. Well, With, and, like, I mean, and I understand and, and the I, whole tradition around it and all of that, but right. Well, and like you know the conversation. The, the, my question. So. <laughs> <laughs> So my issues with Shakespeare productions in general, not Shakespeare theater, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. but Shakespeare productions is, you know, the justification of choices. Right. Like, does this make sense in the context of your production? Like, mm-hmm. I've worked on a production of The, the Tempest. Um, you know, like, there's so much in that play that's about, you know, colonial yes. impulses, you know, and, you know, if we're trying to build that up and, like, make a case about it, make a statement about it, that is one thing. But to cast a person of color as Caliban and just go on like it doesn't have any implication in your production that's right. something different that's together. that's pretty much my my issue with it yeah that's yeah that, yeah. Was, that was my issue with the oh god I'm just being <laughs> cranky uh, <laughs> um with the measure that won um like the best production of the year at the Helen Hayes like this the first year I was in DC I mm. think um, it was the one with puppets, um, and I could not, for the life of me, determine why certain characters were puppets and others weren't. Oh, okay. Because like it was, it was really clever. Because it was like the Duke when he was in disguise, he was a puppet. I was like, okay, that's awesome. Okay, because then that, you can yeah. see puppet response to Isabella, and you can see man response to Isabella. Yeah, yeah. That was really interesting. But then I was like, the the part of me that worked in an institution was like, you're just trying to save money on actors. <laughs> <laughs> Because the same puppeteers were working the different puppets. Oh, And so I was like, okay. so you... Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, my friend and I sat in Tunnies for quite a while after they were trying to come up with a unified puppet theory. Um, there was a lot about that production I loved, but that just drove me nuts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't seen... I haven't seen... What's the last thing I saw at Shakespeare that they produced? Um... It's been a while. Um, yeah. That's the, actually the only thing I've ever seen there when I didn't work there. Like, when I sat in the audience. Yeah. I saw their Romeo and Juliet that they did a few years ago that everybody's been referencing. Their all-male Romeo and Juliet. Oh. Also not a fan. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so cranky about Shakespeare. Um, a lot of people are. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I love it so much. And there's so many poorly done productions yeah um and you know and i get flack for it um it's like the one thing where i'm like "Mm, for the ladies um i love all male shakespeare i really do um there's a uh, company uh oh my goodness called propeller um, oh yeah company um and i think they do fabulous productions um but they have so much passion and life in them and they move so quickly you know like the thing that drives me nuts is when people say that you have to dumb Shakespeare down or you have to like you know take it slowly or you have to you know like act everything out with your hands so people know what's being said it's like no you don't really don't (laughs) um but I have a student matinee (laughs) 
Yeah. It's amazing. The student matinees for even the, like, the I, for Measure for Measure. I wasn't at the present for mm-hmm. the Measure for Measure that we did. That was the... <sighs> That it's it's really fascinating choices and the last one that they did um, mm. setting it in uh, Austria I mean th- just keeping the setting in Austria and just moving mm-hmm. it yeah. into like this pre-Nazi yeah. proto-Nazi time that was a really good idea but like in Coriolanus okay Coriolanus is a better example because the play itself is is, is a challenge anyway just because right. it has a weird rhythm to it and kind of have to buy Coriolanus's anger and why he should be restrained. It's a lot of politics. Mm-hmm. Like, action scene right up front, which is really smart of Shakespeare, which I'm like, you can actually cut that action scene. You don't like, <laughs> physically need it, except if you didn't, it would be dull politics for the next hour and a half, and right. that's not a good way to run your play. <laughs> right. But the students picked up on absolutely all of it. Affairs yeah. of honor, there is nothing that high sc- American high school students understand better than affairs of honor. They, <laughs> they know an insult when they hear one. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. It's just so frustrating because, like, you know, I feel like every time there's a production that an audience feels like they don't get, to me that means we haven't done our work. Oh, I agree, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if you do your work, if you break down the text, if you understand every single word and why you're saying it and what you're trying to do to the other person and if they react in the same way, if they understand everything that's happening, then your audience will understand. Um, so if they aren't, then you're probably just riding on the pretty language, and you probably don't know what you're saying. Right. Um, you know, like <laughs> my Midsummer cast when I did that—that's the last Shakespeare that I did. You know, we'd be running a scene, and they'd say something, and I'd stop them and be like, "Okay, so what are you talking about?" <laughs> and I'd be like, "Um, something like this." I'd be like, "All right, let's." you know stop like break it down what are you saying yeah. like, what are you yeah. actually saying what are you trying to do and they'd be like okay 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 and like the <laughs> biggest compliment that I got was from uh, Liz who she and I frequently get into arguments about Shakespeare because she hates Shakespeare mm. and she was like this is the first production where I understood every single word and I was like alright we did our work <laughs> so yeah but so yeah but no but like to go back to issues of representation in Shakespeare um, you know, like again, as like a former lit person, like so. You know, it's like you look at you know, like you read Nelson's article about how Shakespeare is struggling financially. Yep. And then you look at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who are thriving. Biggest theater in the country, if you go yeah. by budget. And like, they're they're yeah, they're doing so tremendously well. What do they have other than Shakespeare? They have a specific program dedicated to commissioning new plays. And they're producing things like Party People um, that, oh my goodness, I'm going to blank on their names. Um, But, you know, like they're commissioning plays about more contemporary American history, you know, and and, and like they have, they have a department, I believe it's a department, but they have like, they have so many people dedicated to facilitating the conversations around diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. They have, um, you know, uh, the, I think they're the home for, or maybe one of the homes for, I'm going to screw this up. Uh, there's a, there's a, a grant 
or scholarship, uh, fellowship, fellowship for uh, directors of color to specifically oh, okay, focus yeah, yeah. on mm-hmm. directing Shakespeare. And I'm pretty sure you do that at Oregon Shakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like they're, they're dedicated to that and they are thriving. They are also in the middle of nowhere. It should be yeah. Ashland. Ashland, Oregon is it the only thing in Ashland, Oregon or around it yeah. for over an hour. Yeah. And like, so it's like if they can be that successful with that, why why would you turn your back on it? Why would you not pay any attention to what they're doing if you have these two great spaces in downtown DC? You know, like obviously like I'm not in the rooms, I'm not in the yeah, discussions, yeah. you know, like there may be issues that I'm not aware of. Um but you know, it's like rather than expand to a classic company and maybe doing Pinter or Mammoth, you know, like open it up in a different way and diversify if Michael Kahn says you know he doesn't know what people want to see maybe take some more time to look at what's succeeding at OSF look at what's succeeding in television and film you know like there have been so many recent success stories about stories that are written by directed by starring women people of color you know Um, it's like if you like this is what this is what we want these are the stories that we want to hear these are the voices that we want to hear and like you know it's i just i just don't understand why people don't get it yeah um especially when it's so easy to fix you know you know it's like um you know the 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 story i heard about you know um Julia Jordan was telling me from the Lilly Awards mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know so many of the theater companies in New York were saying you know like we don't we don't get fifty fifty submissions from men and women you know in our literary department we get you know closer to thirty percent of our submissions are from women and they ran the numbers and they saw that that was true and then they were like oh but Playwrights Horizons you get fifty fifty in your submissions because if people don't think you're actually serious they aren't going to waste their time applying you know submitting Um, which is already a giant waste of time anyway in many respects it's yeah yeah yeah. it's like what is it like six thousand submissions for eight spots for the o'neill or something yeah that o'neill competition yeah (laughs) Yeah. um it reminds me very much of getting into harvard or like getting into any of those schools like oh to be successful coming out of harvard you had to be successful getting into harvard yeah so that that kind of bias creeps in yeah yeah um but yeah like you have to prove that it's something you care about first and like you know even for like the smaller for smaller companies larger companies whatever like really the thing that's at the heart of like turning that around for your company is giving a shit um <laughs> yes <laughs> you know deciding that that is something that you're going to prioritize yes and, like, absolutely yeah the the best example i can point to is if you look at forums production history yeah. mm-hmm. um you know when i was i spent a year as a company member at forum and when I was there, the running joke was that Forum produced men and Carol Churchill um, because she was the only female writer that they'd produced in like six seasons. Um, and then I don't know what made Michael switch his priority, but he did. And now you look at their seasons and there's incredible diversity and really they're doing really stuff. well. Yeah. And like, 
they're getting a lot of attention for their for their diversity issue, like their focus. Um, you know, and it it's just takes caring about it. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing is, I'm I'm. It's gonna feel like I'm taking this discussion away while, but okay. it's, it's not. So right. my I'll cousin, wait. my cousin. I live, I live with my, my aunt and my uncle and my grandmother and my cousin. Um, and she's a junior in high school and she's probably, she will never listen to this podcast so she would hate that I, we're having this discussion. But she's having, <laughs> she's having you know, difficulties in a certain class. Mm-hmm. And, and we're throwing ideas at her. It's like, I won't do that. I won't, I won't mm-hmm. do that. Like, do you want a good grade? No. Well, yes. Are you getting a good grade now? <laughs> no. Right. So, the scientific method dictates here that in order to have a hypothesis you must change at least one thing about what you're doing (laughs) right right and that's so analogous to like yeah you can have a summit about representation but until you simply do it some of those issues that you're talking about won't go away until you do it it's like magic (laughs) right it looks like an issue until you actually start to do it and then the problem of discovering new work or whatever or discovering women voices Mm -hmm. and i and i refuse to believe that they're the canon is so empty of women playwrights that you even that you even have to start with new work to get women involved. That's yeah. probably crap. It is. I mean, <laughs> just by I don't know numbers, like yeah. statistics, the fact that Jane Austen mm. is a thing, <laughs> you know. Which is funny aside, mm-hmm. one of my favorite. It, it, it is inevitable in any discussion of Fifty Shades of Grey that somebody will come around and mention comedy of manners and Jane Austen. With, without actually there's I, I want to say it was on might have been on kink I, I don't know mm-hmm. I like um, I followed a link from Twitter mm-hmm. and somebody talked about Jane Eyre mm-hmm. as and that's obviously not Jane Austen but right the, it, talking about specifically Charlotte Bronte right? yeah Charlotte mm-hmm. Bronte talking about I mean Wuthering Heights obviously comes up and then just Fifty Shades discussions as well mm-hmm. but the uh, it, like and they just made it explicit like this is a dumb submissive relationship and Jane is in control and this is awesome and you guys should wake up uh, so like apparently there's something about <laughs> something in the water in Regency England is a really good metaphor for BDSM repression <laughs> there you go <laughs> it's true but yeah I think I think that's absolutely right and I think there's a, a younger generation well not just a younger generation but there's definitely a people a set of people that are feeling empowered by Whatever it is, the entrepreneurial spirit that's in the air. There's a lot of people that I know, and Twitter's making this possible. And I did the same thing. Like I'm no longer interested in working for. I love theaters and I love regional theater, but I'm not. I don't want to be tied down to one theater anymore. Right. So we're getting a bunch of people who are feeling empowered to make these decisions and be the ones to make that change. And yeah. so it's sad to see, especially especially sad to see like Michael say, "I don't know what I don't know what people want anymore." It's like, well. Don't try then. Like that's that's what I think is, in, is because you know I I was in the I was in the meetings when we were talking about preliminarily the season previous to this mm-hmm. um, this season the one that they're currently running um, and we're like yeah he really wants to do this uh, Stoppard adaptation of Pirandello that Enrico four um, but we decided to cut it because we didn't think it would sell well so we're like yeah but what. What do you? Yeah. What if your season is going to be such a surefire hit that you right. can afford to drop something that your artistic director cares passionately about? People right. can sense if you're connected yeah. to the material or not, and let the man do something that he really wants to do. Right. Then you will sell tickets, and obviously, yeah. that there. Well, I mean, there's a whole lot of other issues with Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and but that's the thing. Like, if you're gonna guess, then right. don't guess. 
right, right. Just do something that you're passionate about. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, I want to I'm going to go back and clarify my ugh, marketing comment from earlier cuz <laughs> I love marketing people. They're wonderful. Like I, you know, like please any day sit me down with Allie Houseworth and oh yeah, just yeah. listen to her. Um, and she's completely responsible for getting Peter on Twitter, which every day we should thank her. Yeah. Um, yeah. but um but yeah, no, I, I hope I'm quoting her correctly when I say, you know, like she can market anything that you give her, you know, and especially if you're passionate about it, like, you know, you just have to focus and have the right, you know, like, um, what's the right I'm looking for? Um, you know, like you have to have the right angle on it and yeah. you have to be going yeah. after the right audience for it and you have to know who your audience is for it. Um, you know, and you can, yeah, you can bring people in, you know, excite them, you know, like doing the same kind of show, reaching for the same audience over and over in the same way. It's clearly not working, you know, whether it's because they're not coming as frequently or if it's because you have a much larger house. Like if you have a much larger house and you're running through your subscription base faster earlier in the run and you need to expand your audience, you're not going to expand your audience by hoping that they learn to love what you already do. Yeah. You know? Yes. Like, get Katori Hall to, you know, like, adapt um, Dido, Queen of Carthage. Like, you know, there there's so many amazing, talented women. Like, I would love to see a Sheila Callahan adaptation of a Shakespeare play, you know, like... Or, you know, like there are so many adaptations already of Life is a Dream and like, you know, like so many wonderful plays that they could do that they choose not to, um, you know, or, you know, just do straight up Shakespeare and have Natsu Onoda power direct it. Like Ooh. they just did Tempest, but could yeah. you imagine Natsu taking on Tempest and all the magic? Have her do Midsummer. Her Midsummer would be amazing. But they don't look at local directors. They don't look at that many female directors they don't look at that many directors of color like <laughs> you, you you have to yeah shift your perspective yes absolutely but so we are at hour 15 yes i'm sorry not we're not hour 15 we are at one hour and, and 15, 15 minutes. minutes right to and be clear i and should I, probably head out short yes and you have i didn't I have birthday drinks there it is, yeah, it for is. My birthday. It's your birthday. uh thank you very much for having me here on your birthday oh, yeah. i appreciate it yeah um, it's great uh and we didn't actually even talk about your other other gig where the one where you're an artistic director oh no <laughs> that is no longer okay great. okay <laughs> Okay. That ended in August. Okay, great. So, <laughs> I don't yeah, probably feel less yeah. bad about it. <laughs> no, it 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 uh it was it was good, it was amicable. Um uh I I <laughs> have had the realization many times over that I am not a producer. <laughs> um and I am certainly not a producer and director at the same time. Oh yeah. And that's really what the company needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a lot of wonderful stuff. Like I was so proud of the production that we did with Tara Carriasso directing um, Kristen Harrison's uh, One Glitz Wish. Um, I adored starting the director's center there, which will hopefully yeah. come back sometime soon um, uh, with Michael Rowe and Will Davis. Will Davis, who's nominated for Helen Hayes for his direction of Colossal, which kicked major ass at Olney. <laughs> um so it was it was a tremendous experience, but um, it, yeah, it, we just had to sort of part ways. Um, 
So, uh, but Alina is tremendous and I know she's going to do amazing things with the organization. So I'm excited to see what they do, but yeah. So yeah, so I am officially freelance now. Um, All right. Mostly directing. I sometimes do dramaturgy. Um, I just uh, last month was down in Charlotte, North Carolina for the New Voices Festival down there oh. um, at Actors Theater of Charlotte. Um, and the festival is being run by the marvelous, marvelous uh, Martin Wilkins, um, who spent quite a good t- amount of years in D.C. Um, and New York. Um, and the artistic director is Chip Decker, um, and then also Martin Ketling, former lit manager of the O'Neill, is down there. Um, so they they've they've got some firepower. Yeah, down they there. do. Um, so I was down there working primarily with Diana Grisanti, um, who is in the midst of a Rolling World premiere for her play oh, River City. Um, and we were working on her play Ink. Um, uh, Inc. Um, oh, okay. And I'm gonna forget. It's an insomniac voyage through the corporate and the divine. Ooh, I believe is the subtitle. That, oh. I hope I'm not screwing that up, Diana. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all about um, being an ally to women and how to be an ally to women and the different that 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 thing that you were talking about the being in the moment and the seeing the moment and the reporting out what happened like that's something that we talked a lot about. Um, it's a super smart play. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I've ever spent more evenings in bars shouting about the patriarchy, which might surprise <laughs> some people. Um, but it was it was magnificent. Um, so yeah, it's a wonderful place. So everybody should keep an eye out for Definitely. it. Definitely. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, so freelance, um, which is good, and it's letting me sort of bounce around a little bit more. And so doing Eurydice with the school yep. and. Uh, I taught for YPF at Center Stage, uh, for Center Stage at Marza State Elementary this year, um, which was fun working with fourth graders. I don't know that I would want to commit <laughs> to working with fourth graders all the time. I really like working with uh, college kids and sort of breaking their eyes open to oh, yeah. directing. Yeah. It's a really great experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like throwing stuff at them, like uh, Nature Theater of Oklahoma and introducing them to Complicite and, you know, like... <laughs> giving them some of my, like excerpts from some of my favorite directing books which have nothing to do with theater you know, like <laughs> understanding comics and 101 things I learned in architecture school and yeah. like all this sort of stuff and they're just like what is going on <laughs> um, that's really fun um, it's a little harder to like teach you know Aristotelian plot structure to fourth graders be that's like, true yeah and be like but you don't always have to do rising action to climax and then Dima, you can do whatever you want. Learn the basics and then I'll explode your mind. Yeah. That's what I prefer. <laughs> so yeah. But it's been good. It's been good. So uh so yeah, so Eurydice and then I'm not sure what's next. Mm, yep. That's freelancing for you. Exactly. It's exciting. So Alright, well thank uh, you very much. Yeah, and thank you. <laughs> As he awkwardly pretends to... No, yeah, we're done. Okay.